Well, Got it. Back. Okay. Back. Good to be back. There we go. Yes. Yes. Good. Pef. Basket. Surround. Contain. Mud. Do good to your servant according to your word, O Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment. For I believe in your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their, their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It is good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Yeah. Silver and gold doesn't go very far when, when the world's falling apart. Let's see here. We got... Uh, any prayer requests? I didn't write many down. It's been just a tough week. Uh, Mark and Becky in Colorado are having some problems, uh, uh, various issues, and so we want to keep them in prayer. And um, let's see here. Uh, Kathleen, I understand she's doing well. She, they said she would have been here Sunday, but she had to go somewhere. But I'm very happy about that. And uh, we'll pray that uh, the air conditioner guy will come out tomorrow. We've been for the past 30 minutes working on an air conditioner problem at the church and uh, it's getting hotter and hotter and I'm wondering what's the matter and the pump for uh, pumping the water out of the sump is broken and because of that when it fills up with water the air conditioner won't work so we hopefully that'll get squared away tomorrow and um, okay um, I there was a conversation on Facebook some people uh, that watch online and they said that when people are talking during the Bible class, they can't hear what they're saying. So if you're going to ask a question, ask it really loud and keep it short because they still may not be able to hear you. There's only one microphone over us. So if you ask a question, ask it very loud and then just keep it, your comments short because they, they just can't hear what's going on um, otherwise. So there you go with that. And uh, we'll go ahead and pray and then we'll read Christian history. Heavenly Father, we thank you for getting us started today we weren't sure if we were going to be able to do that five minutes ago but uh the air conditioner is working and uh, uh things seem to be working so we're grateful about that and we just uh ask that you bless this time here we ask that uh, you uh, uh watch over this class and that anything that is not correct which we would pray wouldn't be the case but if there's something that's not correct that you would uh, alert either me or the people that watch to it, and so we could get it resolved, because we never want to mishandle your word, and we never want to uh, add to your gospel in any way, shape, or form, but to keep the purity of it, and uh, the doctrine which is in your word, keep it in its proper context, and in the right dispensation, and just help us to do these things so that your word will be properly handled. We pray this, that you will be glorified, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we have, um, let's see, today is... I put a marker in here and it's not, I see I've cut my hand too. I'm bleeding all over myself. Um, let's see here. 6 September would be 3 September is uh, the current day. Because 6 September is Sunday. September 3rd, just one thing was missing. One of the most famous mothers of all time was Susanna Wesley. Among her 19 children were John and Charles Wesley, founders of the Methodist Church. Susanna was born in 1669 or 1670 the 25th and youngest child of Dr. Samuel Ansley, a magazine editor and pastor in London who was a leader of the dissenters, those who refused to conform to the Anglican Church. So she was born the 
fifth and youngest child. That's a lot of children yeah, in a family. A yeah, young Susanna was very bright and educated herself, reading the many books in her father's house. She listened to many debates in her home on the differences between the Church of England and dissenting churches like her father's. Always of her own opinion, Susanna became convinced that dissent was wrong. And to her family's great surprise, she left her father's church at the age of 13 and joined the Church of England. It was also at the age of 13 that Susanna met her future husband, Samuel Wesley. Like Susanna, Samuel had grown up in a dissenting family, but it disagreed with them and joined the Church of England. Samuel married Susanna a few months after he graduated from Oxford. He was 26 and Susanna was 19. Samuel was ordained in the Anglican Church and eventually became pastor in the parish of Epworth. Susanna gave birth to a baby boy, a baby, a year later, but by early 1702, the Wesleys had but one surviving son and five daughters. Eight children had died. Both Samuel and Susanna were dogmatic, stubborn, and strong-willed with deeply held political allegiances. Both were Tories, but Samuel was an enthusiastic supporter of King William III, while Susanna's sympathies were with James II, who was in exile in France. When Samuel interceded for our sovereign Lord King William in evening prayers, Susanna apparently silently substitute James for William. When word came that James II had died in France, Susanna stopped saying amen at the end of the prayer. When Samuel learned the reason why, he told her, you and I must part, for if we have two kings, we must have two beds. He moved into another room of the house and finally went to London, saying he would never return. That could have been the end of their family, except for another change in royalty. King William died in March and was succeeded by Queen Anne, who had the loyalty of both Wesleys. Samuel <laughs> then returned from London, but they continued to sleep in separate rooms. It took a fire in July 1702 that burned three quarters of their home to bring Samuel back to his senses and to his wife. They began sharing the same bed in August, and on 17 June 1703, John Wesley, their 15th child, was born. He owed his very existence to a fire and to the crowning of Queen Anne. Charles Wesley was born four years later, the 18th son. Susanna Wesley's sons, John and Charles, both personally trusted Christ in 1738 and went on to found what became the Methodist Church. Susanna, however, was critical of their conversions. Then on September 3, 1739, John Wesley had a conversation with his mother that both surprised and thrilled him. She told him that until recently she had never understood that a person could experience the forgiveness of sins in this life, or that God's Spirit could witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Then she said two or three weeks ago, while my son Hall was pronouncing those words and delivering the cup to me, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, the words sunk through my heart, and I knew God, for Christ's sake, had forgiven me all my sins. Three years later, Susanna Wesley died, sharing the same assurance of sins forgiven as her sons. All of Susanna Wesley's family and friends assumed that she was a Christian, but in fact, until near the end of her life, she had been very religious, but had never experienced the per personal forgiveness of sins. Have you personally committed your life to Jesus Christ, or are you just being religious? Susanna was for so many years. And Romans 8.16 says, His Holy Spirit speaks to us deep in our hearts and tells us that we are God's children. So there you go with that. That's uh, one of those ironic things. But uh, John Wesley himself uh, 
they talk about these conversions and how, you know, they knew the Lord and this and that, but John Wesley uh, went as a missionary to um, Georgia. Georgia. And on the way there or on the way back, he saw the Moravians praying during a storm and they were very quiet and calm and they weren't worried about the, the ship sinking at all. And John Wesley came back and he said, I went to Georgia to convert the heathens, but who will convert me? So apparently they may have thought they were saved until a certain point, And then finally they got that fixed. And I don't know if it was before or after the mother. So I don't know if the story there is correct or not. But uh, uh, And then Charles Wesley is the most uh, published hymn writer in history, I believe. And yet he said of uh, Isaac Watts, uh, The Wonderful Cross, he said, I would trade every hymn I've ever written for that one. So... There you go with that. Okay, we're in the book of uh, Galatians. Chapter 3, chapter three and verse 11 is, is where 11, we are. 3.11. So you can go back if you need to. I'm going to go back to the beginning of the paragraph. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. It is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Okay, a little different. That's not much, but, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. All right, <laughs> let's see here. Paul has, this is 3.11. Paul has shown that the law brings a curse, meaning in order for the Galatians to understand this, he says, but that no one is justified in the law in the sight of God is evident. The words in the sight of God are given as we are already standing before God in judgment. In our trial, our life is being evaluated. What deeds of the law can justify us? The answer is none. I mean, it's obvious. If you just, Paul says it, but if you think it through, it's just obvious. But how can this be? The law was given by God. So how can it be that we cannot stand justified before him by observing the law? The answer comes from the words of Habakkuk, who lived under the law and wrote his words under divine inspiration. In his words, he said, the just shall live by faith. Within the law itself was a requirement which necessitated faith in order to have one's sins atoned for. What is that? You had to have faith in order to have your sins atoned under the law. It was on the Day of Atonement. Okay, they had to, they didn't go down to Jerusalem like they did during the pilgrim feasts. They had to stay home, and the Bible says that you will not work on that day, and if anybody uh, does anything, doesn't uh, uh, base himself or whatever, I'm trying to think of the exact word it uses, that man shall be cut off. Well, who's going to know? Who's going to know? It's just you, and you know, you might have your family around you, but it, it comes down to faith. Are you going to exercise faith in what's happening down in Jerusalem while the high priest is atoning for the sins of the people throughout the year? The Day of Atonement is holy of faith, and without the Day of Atonement, the law has no bearing because it says everybody must observe the Day of Atonement. So that means everybody who's violated this law this year. That's what the Lord is telling them at the outset of the giving of the law. If faith was required for this to occur, meaning the Day of Atonement, then it showed that the observance of the law had failed to justify anyone over the previous year, much less their whole life even just over the previous year. And we know that because what does it say in Hebrews uh, uh, 10, 7, is it? Anyway, it says um, uh, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. And But they were offered year by year. 
showing them that they had a consciousness of sin throughout the... Let me see if I can figure out where this is really quickly. And if I can, that's great. And um, I think it was Hebrews 10. Yeah, hang on a sec here. Um, yeah, and every priest... This is 10.11, it says. Um, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The law couldn't do it even for a year, for any person in all of Israel, and yet Jesus can do it for everybody for all of eternity. One time. He offered himself one time for the sins of the people. So, where was I? Um, year by year, okay? Uh, went on year by year for the entire time of the law. What Habakkuk and later Paul explains is that it is impossible for the law to justify anyone because there was already a way of being justified before God, which is faith. There you go. It's faith. That goes back to Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. It took him outside. He said, I don't have any children. He said, look up at the stars. If you can count them, that's how many stars, how many uh uh, offspring you'll have. And it says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him for righteousness. It might have said he credited God instead of the Lord, even though the Lord is God and he's mentioned in the same passage. I don't want to get that wrong, so let's just read it so I don't have you uh, with the wrong uh, information in your head. Genesis 15, 6 says, uh, we'll go back to 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you were able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And it was Lord. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So there you go. You already have the precedent of believing God and being counted righteous. So the law can't change that. The law comes 430 years later. That cannot override the pre precedent that had already been set in Abraham. So there you go with that. It's through faith this was seen in Abraham, and it was seen each year on the Day of Atonement. As there cannot be two means of obtaining justification, and the law is not that means, then it must be by faith alone which justifies. Everybody got that? There can't be two means of justification. It's not the law, okay? So it must be faith alone that justifies. No other means can come in and replace what has been established by precedent. The precedent is given. It was given 430 years earlier, and so we don't need to go any further with that. And as I said, if you're going to witness to a Jew, you can ask them, you know, I'd like to tell you about Jesus, and I'll just give me one time, and they'll, uh, what subject do you want to talk about? And they may say, well, I want to talk about atonement, or I want to talk about righteousness. It doesn't matter which one they ask. You can always weave it back to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, and say, the precedent is set before the time of the law, and therefore, whatever happens in the time of the law is not something that can replace that. It is showing us a lesson about our need for faith in God's presence. That's what the purpose of the law is. It's to lead us to understanding our need for Jesus. In this verse, stress is placed on the word faith. The just shall live by his faith. Because of this, it needs to be determined if this is active or passive faith. If passive, then it is speaking of trusting God, taking him at his word. If it is active faith, then it would mean living faithfully. What Paul is speaking of is the passive faith of trust. 
This is what Abraham was credited for. This is what atoned for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement, and it is what justifies us now. We believe God's word, and he imputes to us his righteousness. After this, we can then demonstrate active faith through living faithfully. So first, we trust in God and all of his promises, and then afterward, we can actively live out our faith. But our failure to do so, our failure to living faithfully, this is an important point to understand because we have people that are out there saying, if you don't do this or do this, then you're not a born-again saved believer, okay? And I could pick a thousand different points that people do that with. I talked about one in the Prophecy Update for the past two weeks, which is you have to support Israel or you're not a true believer, or you have to read the King James only or you're not a true believer, or whatever it is. We talked about this last week. After God has imputed to us his righteousness, we can live our lives faithfully, but our failure to do so will not negate his imputation of righteousness to us. That's something that everybody gets wrong. And I don't mean everybody in the total sense. I'm talking about everybody in the general sense. Is that somebody comes to Jesus Christ and they exercise faith and they are saved. That means they are saved. Salvation is eternal. It, you cannot lose your salvation. If you can, because let me take you here. I know I've said this 4,000 times in the past couple years or however long we've had this Bible study, but I'll read it to you, and then you have to ask yourself. Don't throw in any other verse that's out of context. Just ask yourself about this one particular verse. We're going to go to Ephesians. Okay, we're, we're saved. The gospel is 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and 4. We appropriate it through Romans 10, 9, and 10. And then we go to the book of Ephesians. Hang on, let me turn this page here. And we're going to go to Ephesians 1, and then we're going to trying not to bleed on my Bible is why I'm taking my time here. Uh, verse 13, 113. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So Paul says, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Everybody knows it. I said it three times last week. Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. That's the gospel of your salvation. Okay? So, in him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed. That's it, faith. After, I, I, in having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you believed and you were sealed. There's nothing else that is added in there. God sealed you the moment that you believed, okay? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and then he goes on to say what that means for the believer, who is the guarantee, the aravon of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. You believed. I don't care what you do after your salvation. If God truly saved you, he has sealed you with his Holy Spirit, and he has guaranteed that you are saved. If you can lose your salvation after that, that means that God's guarantee is worth nothing. That means anybody can lose their salvation for any reason at all, okay? That guarantee is worthless, and God's guarantee is not worthless. Secondly, it means that God, he made a mistake, because he, the all-knowing God, knows the end from the beginning, sealed you, guaranteed that you would be saved, and then he took that away. So God made a mistake, which is not the God of the Bible. I don't care what other theology you throw at me, it will be out of context if it doesn't correspond to that right there. Because one plus one in theology always equals two if it's proper theology. 
okay? In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And then we can go from there back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. Why is it eternal? How do we know that that salvation is eternal? It says that God is in Christ, that God is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God has forgiven you your sins when you believed in Jesus. He has sealed you with his Holy Spirit. That is a guarantee. And then from there, you are no longer imputed sin. If you're not imputed sin, then you cannot lose your salvation because the wages of sin is death. And that's talking about the spiritual connection connection to God, the death that you receive when you uh, sin for the first time, which everybody's born with sin. And so you're automatically spiritually disconnected from God the moment that you, you're conceived. Okay, that goes from Adam all the way down. But Christ is the one that brings us back to that spiritual life, that spiritual connection to God. But if you are not being imputed sin because you're not under law, then you cannot have that connection cut ever again. Okay, everybody see the logic? If you don't, we can explain it a different way so that you grab that. I want you to understand that salvation is eternal. The Bible teaches that. There are a few hard verses that uh, you may not understand. I guarantee you I've done a commentary on them already. Just go to the Superior Word website, go to the PDF of that particular book, and then scroll down to that verse and read it, and you'll see where you were wrong in that particular in that particular analysis. Sometimes people use like Hebrews, um, uh, I think it's 4, 6 or 6, 4. Anyway, um, uh, it talks about, uh, you know, people uh, believing, and then um, uh, let me read it to you just so that you know what I'm talking about. And the context is what you have to remember with that. That was a long commentary I did, but I can sum it up in just a very short point. Uh, let me take you to Hebrews. I think it's six four, but uh, yeah. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify them again for themselves, the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. So if you want to know what that means, just go and read the commentary. But in short, it's speaking of the people of Israel. It's written to the people of Israel, and it's in the plural. So it's speaking of them as a people, okay? But uh, that's just one point out of about 4,000 points I make on those three verses. But um, uh, it's something that people need to understand because um, somebody, and I don't need to give his name, but he emailed me and I said, he said in his email, he said, I, I really think I'm not saved. He said, uh, I, I get angry. I get very angry and et cetera. And I said, he wrote this email out and I took a part of the paragraph and I cut and paste or copy and pasted it back to him. And I put it in quotes and I said, that could be describing me. I said, and the only difference is he says, I don't think I can be saved and live this way. And my, the only difference between him and me is I said, I'm so thankful that I'm saved despite this. You know, I get angry. I, I, I just, but I know that God has saved me. And I'm going to cling to that forever because that's what the Bible teaches. And so I was thankful that he sent that because it helps me process my own shortcomings. And it helps me to realize I'm not alone in the world when I get angry at the political situation, at the things that are going on in the world. And, you know, and a lot of people here are stewing right now. I can see faces just going, oh, I, we were talking about that before class. I mean, it, it's almost 
it's very hard to live in this world at this time and pay attention to what's going on and not be angry. So um, if you don't watch the news and if you're not paying attention, you may actually be better off than the rest of us. Yes. You know, because uh, it's just a really difficult time to live right now. Daily dose of anger. There's another person. So we can see it's We all realize what's going on. And uh, you should never, if you believe that gospel, 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried and he was rose again. If you believe that, then you're saved. And you should not question your salvation. You should be thankful for your salvation despite yourself. Um, uh, but it, I do when I... I do something really stupid or think something really terrible, I will say, Lord, I don't understand how you can love me, but I know that you love me. So I'm not questioning my salvation, but I am questioning how he could have such great love and mercy. I do think that making people fall for the fact that they could spare salvation, I'm not sure what is loud. I've been I don't know, just, it, yeah, just nice what, and loud. What I'm, what, I'm gonna ask a question for everybody who's watching this. It's like, can you hear me? Yeah, let, let, I, let us know if you can hear Jim now. Hear because me, then, then I'm going to have to like, read sit on Charlie's lap or something. But uh, the, uh, the question I was going to say is that like, if you, if you feel that, you could, that somebody could say, oh, you're going to lose your salvation for that, you're suddenly subservient that's right. to that person. That's right, or that doctrine, or that particular right. denomination. And that's, that is what we call control. And you see that in churches all the time. The churches want to control their people, and if they threaten you, good example of, uh, you know, uh, you can't be saved if, which, like I said, I talked about that last Sunday and the Sunday before that, that is control. That is a way that you get your hooks into somebody, and that person now is literally scared to not listen to you, okay? King James only people do that all the time. They scare you into believing that if you're not reading their Bible and you're not uh, uh, participating in their fellowship that you could be lost or that you're not pursuing Christ properly. And there's a reason why people do that is because they now have control over you. Christ did not come to give us eternal insecurity. He came to give us eternal security and uh, the joy of our salvation. So uh, it, it just I don't understand why people feel it necessary to hold other people's salvation like it's it's something that they have control over. They have no control over it. The only person on this planet that has any control over your salvation is you in relation to Jesus Christ. That is it. Nobody else. If you have believed the gospel, you are saved. But anyway, let's go on. Um, I said that, uh, uh, I'll start again with that paragraph. In this verse, stress is placed on the word faith, and because of this, it needs to be determined. Oh, I, I read that whole paragraph. Okay, so uh, um, let's see here. David found this out several times about the point uh, after this, we can we first believe passively, and then we can live out our faith actively. David found this out several times. His failure to live faithfully did not negate his standing before God because of his simple trust in God's mercy and grace. Okay, David was faithful. He was the Lord's anointed, and yet he did some things that were probably worse than anybody here has ever done. You know, I don't think any of us have ever had anybody killed. All right. Some of us may have done the other thing that David did, but he, he did some very bad things. And one of the things he did towards the end of his life, which it's not really counted against him in the, the final uh, thing of his life, but it cost 70,000 people their lives, is that he had a census. And that was against the will of God, because God is the one that determines it's time to have a census of the people. Okay. And why would David have a census? What would be the reason for that? Pride. 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 How many people do I have under me? What, how great of a king I am. So it wasn't about God at all. It was about him. And it was such an offense that he did that 
that his own general, Joab, who wasn't the greatest guy in the world, actually said, I'm not going to go through with this. He never counted the people, I think, of the tribe of Benjamin. So uh, David did something very, very wrong there, and yet he understood that God was gracious and merciful despite his failing to live faithfully. So when you're doing something that you know you shouldn't be doing, it's best you stop doing it, but at the same time, don't feel that that has somehow separated you from God's love. If you believed in Christ, it will never separate you from that. But it will cost you rewards. We're all going to go and stand before the Lord, every one of us. We're going to be judged based on our uh, lives lived after coming to Christ, and that includes doctrine. All right? So you want to pursue doctrine all the days of your life. You want to read the Word. You want to contemplate the Word. If you don't understand a particular point, you want to read different commentaries. Don't just trust any one commentary and, you know, get good advice. And if it doesn't sound right to you, get some more advice. But don't doctrine shop. That's one thing that people love to do. I know that I believe this. And so I'm going to go to website after website until I find a website that agrees with me, and then I'll feel better about myself. That's doctrine shopping. Don't do that, okay? The best thing to do is to take God at his word, and the analysis that is reasonable and that is properly aligned with God's word is the one that's probably correct. But guess what? Unless you know God's word, you're not going to know if it's properly aligned with God's word. So please read your Bible. Read it constantly. Meditate on it all the days of your life. Okay, life application. All things come from God. The only thing that we can give him, which can be credited to our account for righteousness, is to believe. When we do this simple thing, taking him at his word, we stand justified before him. From that point on, we can then add in praise, we can worship, and faithful conduct as a means of pleasing him. But we must first demonstrate that we believe his word before those other things can find their proper place. God's word says this is the gospel. Yeah, we don't have Jesus here proclaiming the gospel, right? I mean, we, but we've got the word that tells of what Jesus did, okay? And this is where we take God's word in faith, and from that point on, God saves us, and then we live our lives out as the best we can, honoring him and bringing glory to him. So, all right, 312. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live Okay, I didn't get to the verse, but it sounds close enough to this one, so I'm not going to reread it. Um, Paul's last words were that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. No one. The obvious question then would be, how can one be justified in God's sight? The answer is that the just shall live by faith. In order to show that this is true, he reaches into the writings under the law itself, and he cited Habakkuk 2.4. Now, Building on that, which was the previous verse, he begins with yet. This is a contrast to what is proper then. And that contrast is that the law is not of faith. In order to demonstrate that this is also true, he returns again to the law and he cites Leviticus 18 verse 5. It's a verse that I cite almost in every sermon since we've been in the law. I cite it again and again and again. If a person needs to do something under the law in order to live by that law, then faith is excluded. The man who does the things of the law will... Let me... It's four. It's what? Leviticus 18.4. 18, 18.5. Go ahead, read. Okay, well, I'll start at four. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. Right. I am the Lord your God. Five. Five. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man, man does, does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. There you go. That's what we want there. If a man does the things of the law, he will live by them. And 
I, you may not remember, but right at the beginning of Deuteronomy, we were getting into the main section of the law. He did all the reiteration of what was going on, how they got to where they are, and why they're sitting on this side of the Jordan. And he basically said, this law is your life. If This is it. This is your life. And then I noted that at the very end of the law, just before he gives the Song of Moses in the final closing passage where he goes up a mountain Ebo to die, it again says, this law is your life. And what he's doing is he's saying that you have to do this law in order to live. He's building on Leviticus 18, verse 5. The man who does these things will live. And then we're shown all the way through all of the rest of the Old Testament that nobody can do the things of the law. Nobody. Because every single person that was born from the time of Moses all the way up until the coming of Christ did what? He died. They died. If they did the things of the law, and the man, the man who does the things of the law shall live by it, it's not speaking about living prosperously. It's not speaking about living, you know, a healthy life or anything like that. It is speaking about living. The man who does the things of the law will live. That's a guarantee from God, and nobody does the things of the law. They all died. But Christ came, and he did the things of the law. He was crucified for our sins, and he came out of the grave. So the man who does the things of the law will live, and he did live. And now if we put our trust in Christ, we have fulfilled the law in Christ. Not on our own, but in Christ, and therefore we will live. That's John 3.16, everlasting life. That is what that is speaking of. Now, it's obvious that we still continue to die, and that's because God has arranged it that way. It's another step of faith. When you are a person and you see Christians dying, and yet the Bible says that you're given eternal life in Christ, then you obviously have to process that and say, I understand that this is not speaking about this carnal physical life. This is speaking about something that God is going to do for me. It's the spiritual reconnection to him first, and that is a guarantee, a deposit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that we will be raised and we will live forever. Everything comes back to faith everything in our walk but this is what paul is saying right here concerning the law is that if you have to do the things of the law then obviously the law is not of faith okay this is a contrast to what is proper then and i've already read this but i'm going to read it again and that contrast is that the law is not of faith he went back to leviticus 18 verse 5 a person needs to do something under the law in order to live by that law then faith is excluded Doing a deed demonstrates an attempt to be justified by that deed. That's why we do something. I do something and I am justified by it in one way or another. It may be that I make my mom happy. It may be that I get a bigger paycheck. Whatever it is, we're doing a deed for maybe for self-satisfaction. But the fact is we are justifying something or somebody in the doing of a deed. Thus, faith is excluded. Faith implies that one is not trusting in one's own deeds. Further, in order to be justified by the law then, as long as the man lives, he would need to continue to do the things of the law. It's not just a one-time deal. I do the things of the law today and I'm going to live forever. You have to continue to do the things of the law always. At no time could a person stop doing those things and be considered just. Never. There's no point where you can say, I can let this precept of the law fall. Never. You have to have the law perfectly executed, not just today, not just tomorrow, but forever. When you stop doing that, the man who does the things of the law will live, will live, then obviously you will not live. As Albert Barnes notes, the law requires unwavering and perpetual obedience. Faith is entirely excluded 
from this type of life. There's no time that you can exercise faith under the law because you're always looking to be pleasing through deeds of the law. And that's why the Day of Atonement comes along. Even though it is a precept of faith, it is something that is apart from the rest of law. It's saying that I understand that I did not meet God's standards and I need something else. And that becomes an act of faith. And that's what Christ, if you watch the Leviticus 16 sermons, I think there's three, there might be only two of them, and then you watch the uh, Day of Atonement sermon from Leviticus 23. That'll give you a full, broad picture of what the Day of Atonement is. What, how does that point to Jesus Christ? And I assure you, every single word of those sermons points to Christ. It's just typology that Israel lived out until the time, the fullness of the times when Christ would come. Okay, once again, there's another heresy, is that the feasts of the Lord are all fulfilled in their entirety, and we are not looking for any future fulfillment of any feast of the Lord. To say otherwise is to say that Christ is not the fulfillment of those feasts, and thus he's not the Messiah. So make sure that you, you know, there's a person in the church, and I won't say who it is, but uh, they heard me say that he or she, I say they, I know that's not proper grammar, but I'm trying to stay away from it, but uh, he or she uh, heard me say that, and instead of just saying, oh, I agree with Charlie, or I agree with the other position that the fall feasts are yet to be fulfilled, this person did his or her due diligence went through them and said, I'm convinced the feasts are fulfilled. So you don't just take somebody's word at it, go out and check it out. And you will find, if you go to those sermons and you just study them and you compare it with what you find in the New Testament, you will see that, yes, in fact, everything under the law, everything is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, in the previous verse, the stress was upon the word faith. Now it rests upon the word does. He's making a contrast between faith and doing. The two are mutually exclusive. One can either have faith in Christ's work in order to please God, or one can do deeds of the law in order to please him. Paul's words are a petition for the Galatians to think through the avenue that they have taken. We don't want to take these verses and analyze ourselves right out of the book of Galatians. He's speaking to real people that have fallen away from God's grace that he presented to them, they were saved, and now they are trying to go back and be pleasing to God through works of the law. And that's the point of what he's saying. All of this analysis is bringing us back to the point where Paul is trying to tell the Galatians, you have made a fundamental error in thinking. You started by faith, and now you're trying to earn it through deeds. And it doesn't work that way. Will they now introduce the law of Moses when they have already exercised faith? If so, then Christ's work and fulfillment of the law is set aside. In doing this, they would then have to fulfill the law perfectly with that unwavering and perpetual obedience mentioned by Albert Barnes. It is a self-condemning act. Paul's words are a petition for the Galatians to think through the avenue that they have taken. He's actually begging them, if you look at his words, he's begging them to get reason and to understand where they have gone wrong. Life application. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, which I brought up a little while ago, says that you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe in the gospel message of Christ. Paul has now shown that continuing in that faith is how the just person shall live. He has also now shown that pursuing the law is not of faith. Once again, the Galatians are presented the gospel, they believe it, and they're supposed to continue in faith. They're not supposed to fall back on the law once they've been given the grace of God in Christ. So stand fast on the grace of Christ and do not be suckered into believing that you must observe some 
or all of the tenets of the law in order to be pleasing to God. In so doing, you actually become displeasing to him. You have forsaken the work of his son and have gone about seeking your own righteousness. That's the point of the book of Galatians is to tell us that we are not looking to please God through our deeds. We're looking to please God daily by understanding what Jesus Christ did for us. He did all of this work, every bit of it. He fulfilled every precept and every line of the law of Moses. And so when he hung on the cross and we go back and we do those things saying, well, I need to observe the feasts of the Lord. We're saying that what he did was insufficient. Jesus, I know you did a good job, but I can do a better job. That's exactly what you're doing. I got a call from my friend. Uh, it doesn't matter. I won't give his name, but he called me a couple days ago, was going to see his family. And on the way, he said, are you seeing the Hebrew roots everywhere? He says, every time I, I look at anything, all I'm seeing is these people proclaiming we need to do this and we need to do that and we need to do this. And all that is is bondage. It, that's all it is, is just bondage. We'll take you really quickly. Just came to mind and might as well read it because it kind of goes along with this is um, Colossians. And we want to go to Colossians chapter one. Maybe it's two. I want Colossians chapter two, Philippians i got to get used to these pages here, Colossians chapter 2, and then we're going to go to 15. Why don't I go back? I'm just going to read you from 11 on in Colossians 2. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, okay? So you were circumcised, not like the Jews were, as a picture of the coming Christ. We are circumcised by God in our uh, without hands, okay, by putting off of the body of sins. We have put off the body of sins because we are in Christ. The body of sins is the law because by the law is the knowledge of sin. If you don't have law, then you can't sin. That takes us back to where it says you're not being imputed sins in 2 Corinthians 5, 19. It's because you're not under law. But if you're under law, then you're being imputed sin, okay? So buried with him in baptism in which you were you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that means before you came to Christ, he has made alive. That's the spiritual rebirth that we were talking about a minute ago. Together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. All trespasses are forgiven in Christ and you are no longer being imputed trespasses and therefore you cannot lose your salvation. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements, meaning the law of Moses that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Christ's body is what was nailed to the cross. He is the embodiment of the law. He's saying that the law was nailed to the cross through Christ's body. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Here it is, verse 16. So, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Food, dietary laws of Leviticus. Drink, okay, dietary laws of Leviticus. Regarding a festival, that's the feasts of the Lord. The um, Leviticus 23, feasts of the Lord. Or a new moon, that's one of the precepts under the law. Every new moon they had a celebration or Sabbath. There are 52 Sabbaths in the year, plus the special Sabbaths of the Day of Atonement and one other. Anyway, the Sabbaths. You're not required to do those things anymore. You are not. And if you are, what are you doing in church on Sunday? Why aren't you in church on Saturday? And from Friday night at uh, uh, whenever the sun goes down, I'm trying to think right now, it's probably about 7 o'clock. 
until Saturday night at 7 o'clock. You're not to do anything. You're not to start a fire, nothing. Nobody does that. Why? Because it's fulfilled in Christ. But we love to pick and choose our little pet peeves that we want to reinsert and say, I need to do this because Jesus didn't really do a great job. Let's not do that. Let's hold fast to what Christ has done. Let, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is of Christ. If you hold on to Christ, you get the shadow too. If you grab the shadow, you get nothing. Hold on to Christ. All right, let's see here. Where were we? We were... Um, uh, yeah, you've forsaken the work of uh, his son and gone about seeking your own righteousness. Okay, we're in 313. So we are. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is any, everyone who is hung on a tree. Okay, it, very close. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. <coughs> Excuse me. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. At the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, we had an introduction. I do an introduction to the books as we're doing them. At the book, beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, I gave all of the points and all of the anticipations of the coming book and what's really cool about it and some interesting points. But I said the key prophetic verse in all of the book of Deuteronomy is what Paul just cited right here. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. If you get this theology right, then you'll understand how wonderful what Jesus Christ did for us. Okay, let me see here, 3.13. In verse 10, Paul said, let me read that first. Where is that? Give me the reference to that. It's Deuteronomy. Oh, it's Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy uh, 21, chapter 21. Okay, 21. Start at 22. Okay, 21. I want to read that first, just so we have it. It says here... Um, Oh, okay, whatever. I got it here now. Um, then, oh, 21. You said 20. Oh, I got it. Yeah. If a man has committed a sin sir, uh, deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is, who is hanged is accursed of God. Okay. That's the central point of the prophetic work of the book of Deuteronomy as fulfilled in Christ. That verse right there. I mean, there's all kinds of prophecies that are in Deuteronomy that are fulfilled in Christ, but this one here really is the clincher. Now, this is such an important precept to the people of Israel that they even applied it to their enemies. If they killed a uh, king, like in the book of Joshua, they killed the kings, five kings of whatever, this king here, and they hang him on a tree, guess what they would do? They would make sure they took him down off the tree and buried him because you will defile the land otherwise. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That shows you the severity of what Christ went through for us. In verse 10, Paul had said that as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. <clears throat> he then went on to explain to us that if the precepts of the law are not met by anyone under the law and which no one can meet, then they are under a curse. Everybody got that? You don't meet the precepts of the law. Even one of them, 613 precepts, you don't meet one of them, you are under a curse. That is explicit. As a matter of fact, it goes on and uh, it explains that. We'll see it more and more as we go through Deuteronomy. But there's a point where it goes into um, when you enter into the land, you're to have these tribes stand on Mount Ebal and these tribes stand on Mount Gerizim. And these people are to say, cursed is every man who uh, doesn't do this. 
So be it. Cursed is every man who doesn't do this. So be it. And I think the final thing it says, and I could be wrong on this, but it's cursed who doesn't uphold every word of this law. Okay. And then what do they do? They fulfill that when they go into the promised land. They go and they build the altar just as they were told to. They actually have found that altar in Israel. It's giant. Anyway, um, uh, from there, uh, it's recorded that they actually did that. These tribes stood on this mountain and these tribes stood on this mountain. They called back and forth to each other exactly as Moses told them to. Cursed is anyone who does not fulfill all the things of this law. And I know that's a misquote, but just so you understand, this is the weight of the law. You don't do the law, you are under a curse, okay? Everybody here admit that you've broken some precept of the law? You're under a curse, okay? Now, here's what it says. Uh, it, it, if there's anyone under the law in which no one can meet, that they are under a curse. Now, to show the marvel of Jesus Christ, he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. If the law brought a curse, and if Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, then it must mean that the law is annulled through Christ's work, as it is explicitly said to be done in numerous passages of the old uh, of the New Testament. Uh, what is it? Hebrews seven eighteen, Hebrews eight thirteen, Hebrews ten verse nine, and Colossians two verse fourteen, which I just read you. Uh, the law is nailed to the cross. But those verses from Hebrews and Colossians and other places, Paul says it as well in Romans several times, it is explicitly said that the law is done. The law is completed, okay? Paul is obviously speaking of the Jews who are under the law, but his words are given to include the Gentiles and in Galatia and to us as well, because Galatians is placed into the book of the Bible, all right? Who would stupidly stupidly presume to insert the law into our own lives when it is fulfilled in Christ. That's the point of what Paul is doing. We are not under the law. We are, we are Gentiles that believed in Jesus' atoning sacrifice for all sins of the world, and we are freed from the law, even though we were never under the law. But what happens is we say, well, I want to go back under the law. You see what you're doing? You're bringing a curse upon yourself by doing that. Okay, that's exactly what Paul is trying to relate to us. Ellicott, Charles Ellicott notes that the opening of this verse without any connecting particle lends sharpness and emphasis to the contrast. The law brought a curse. There it stopped short. That was all it could do. The first thing that Christianity does is undo this result of the law by deliverance from the curse. He's saying that the law automatically brings a curse on everybody, and that's all that it can do. The law cannot bring anybody anything but a curse, because we all violate precepts of the law. And I'm talking about people under the law. And the very first thing that Christ does for anybody that comes to Christ is to annul, to abrogate, to do away with the law. Why would we go back under that? Where the law failed, Christ prevailed over it and redeemed us from the curse. The law is a curse. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give away a little bit of the sermon. Not this week's, because this week's is part four. We're doing David and Goliath. If you haven't been watching it, you should go back and watch the first three David and Goliath sermons. And then we've got part four this week. And then we are going to see, in part five, all of the typology that is fulfilled. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you can figure out where it is, is that that is exactly what we're seeing right here. Okay? Exactly. Go back and read the, the sermons again and just keep peering into them. And in two weeks, if you haven't figured it out, I'll give it to you. Okay? Exactly what we're seeing right here. 
Okay, Paul is saying that it is through the work of Christ that we have, oh, let me go back a little bit. Uh, yes, we're delivered from the curse. Where the law failed, Christ prevailed over it and redeemed us from the curse, meaning the law. The word redeemed here means to purchase or to buy up. From that, it gives the sense of to purchase anyone, to redeem, to set free. Paul is saying that it is through the work of Jesus Christ that we have been purchased. We have been bought out of and thus set free from the law, which brings a curse. So why would anyone attempt to reinsert or to insert into the case, in the case of the Gentiles, that from which a purchase of redemption has been made and which could only bring a curse? Why would you do that? That's what Paul is trying to beat into their heads, is that we have been purchased from the law. We never need to go under the law in order to be pleasing to God, and yet Gentiles are going in and saying, okay, I've been purchased from the law, and now I'm going to go back under the law, and I'm going to bring a curse on me. Or Jews have been purchased from the, the law that they lived under, and now they're saying we have to go back under that law. Either way, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you go under the law, you're bringing a curse on yourself. Why would you do that? Next, to show us how Christ did this thing on our behalf, he says that it is through Christ having become a curse for us. Christ became a curse for us. Where is that also recorded? It's in two, anybody? Two, begins with the C, ends with Corinthians. anybody? <laughs> two, let me get there, hang on. Give me a second, and then it's in chapter, comes after four and before six. Anybody? Okay. Five, and then it's uh, verse 21, the last verse of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. For he made him, Jesus Christ, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ became sin so that we could be redeemed from the curse of the law. That's what Paul is now repeating in a different way in the book of Galatians. And we would be so arrogant as to say, I need to go back under the law. I need to observe a Sabbath. I need to stop eating pork. All we're doing is bringing condemnation on ourselves, and we're flippantly saying that Christ did not do a good job. Okay. I don't know if that's tripped out again or not. If it has, if it gets hot in here, I'm sorry. The air conditioner has been having problems because we've got a thing that isn't working. So if it gets hot, I'm sorry. If it's working, that's fine. I can't tell because I always get hot when I'm doing a, a Bible study. So here we go. Um, Everyone, yes, let me read that again. Next to show us how Christ did this thing on our behalf, that it is through Christ having become a curse for us. That was explained in Galatians 2 verse 20. Christ became a curse under the law by becoming legally impure. Because as Paul now cites from Deuteronomy 21, 23, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became legally impure for our sakes. Imagine that. God the holiest being that could be, did this for us. Here, Paul cites the substance of the Greek translation of the Old Testament passage, but he notably leaves off the words, by God, after cursed. Paul knew that Christ was not cursed by God when he was crucified. The law deemed Christ, as it were, as accursed by having subjected him to the type of death that a scoundrel would die. He died in fulfillment of the law, and he died, and in his death, the law then cast him out of its legal constraints by the type of death he died. Everybody got that? The legal constraints of the law cast Christ out. 
because he became a curse for us. Thus, when we join to him, we are also cast out of the legal constraints of the law. The law has no power over us because of this. If the law is what brings sin, and if sin is the wages of death, then that means we can no longer be separated from God. We can no longer be imputed. We are no longer imputed sins, and therefore we cannot lose our salvation. If you just think it, think it through very clearly, salvation by default must be eternal. Because if not, there's no hope for anybody. Nobody. Absolutely nobody. All right. The law has no power of a power over us because of this. The word for tree here, zulon, means anything made of wood. A piece of wood, a club, a staff, the trunk of a tree, something used to support the crossbar of a cross and crucifixion, and so on. If a tree is that which gives life, and this is certainly what was on Paul's mind, then as Ignatius quotes, Christ was nailed up for our sakes, of which fruit are we? That is, the cross is regarded as a tree, and Christians are its fruit. You think of the symbolism. Christ died on the cross. He was cast out of the law because of it, and we are there being fruit to God because of Christ. The symbolism is extremely rich, and it points back to the very fall of man where this was written in Genesis chapter 3. Hang on just a sec. Genesis chapter 3. Give me a moment. to. I'm going to have to get used to all these pages. It's going to take a while, but eventually we'll have it. Genesis chapter 3, and then in verse, one more page, 24, it says, So he drove the, drove the man, drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The tree of life. It is Christ who is the life, and it is Christ who restores us to access to eternal life through his cross. It is the most amazing thing for us to consider. That hope in life which was lost is now again available through the death of Christ. If you think of it, the tree of life was taken away from man in Genesis 3. It's given back to man in its fulfillment in Revelation chapter, I think it's 21. I think it might be 20, anyway, not 20 or 21. But right there in the middle of the Bible, Christ is in a garden, and he's suffering for us. So from a garden to a garden, and it happens in a garden. It's wonderful. The symbolism of the Bible is simply amazing. It is Christ, I'll read that again, who is the life. And it is Christ who restores us to access to eternal life through his cross. Life application. All who attempt to be justified by works of the law are under a curse. Those who claim to be in Christ and yet mandate works of the law are both heretics and under a curse. Keep far away from such depraved people. You know, we've got our dear friend Charlie on Facebook is always posting something to get people riled up. And she doesn't do it in a spiteful way. She does it in a very almost sly way. She'll post something and like, I'm going to go have bacon today or something. And what do you think about that? And people start, of course, condemning her. You can't be eating because that's part of the law and you're not supposed to be eating it. And these people right there on Facebook are condemning themselves in their posts. They're showing that Christ's death meant nothing to them meant absolutely nothing to them because they have not taken the time to understand the theology and simply accept that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. And then, of course, the post starts dying down. And so the next day or two days later, she'll make another jab in there and everybody gets excited again. Oh, she's marvelous. Marvelous at it. Okay. 
What? Yeah, pot stir. Big one. Okay, let me get to the page before you read 314. And go ahead, 314. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Okay, they've completely rewritten this one. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. See, little words make a big difference in how it's being presented. In this verse, Paul uses the word that, or ina, in the Greek, twice. The first speaks in response to verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been a, become a curse for us. As this is so, then the law is fulfilled and annulled through him. He has done away with all the precepts which it held. And he has broken down its limitations, meaning its exclusive nature is belonging to the nation of Israel alone. In doing so, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. The exclusivity of Israel's inheritance is gone. The door has been opened for the promises to Abraham to be lavished upon all nations through mere faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, when I say this, I read, you, read here, the exclusivity of Israel's inheritance is gone. That doesn't mean that Israel doesn't have an inheritance. People don't want to make that mistake. What that means is that Gentiles are now sharers in the Boston or Massachusetts is known as one of the what states? Commonwealth, thank you. Okay, Commonwealth. We now share in the Commonwealth of Israel. When I say, I'll read it again, the exclusivity of Israel's inheritance is gone. Exclusivity means that they are not the only inheritors. What that means is that we participate now in their inheritance, okay? We have not replaced Israel. We are included in the Commonwealth of Israel. Got to be careful with that because somebody is going to misinterpret that and they're going to say, oh, well, then the Israel, the Jews are out. Israel is out. Or the Gentiles have replaced Israel or whatever thing people start thinking. And that is completely untrue. Israel still has its inheritance. As a matter of fact, it hasn't even come to them yet. But in the meantime, we are partakers in the commonwealth of Israel. Okay, the door has been opened for the promises to Abraham to be lavished upon all nations through mere faith in the finished work of Christ. However, there is still an exclusive nature to this blessing. It is not granted automatically to all people. Rather, it is only for those who are in Christ Jesus. One must demonstrate faith in what God has done through Christ in order to be included in the blessings of Abraham. Read it again. It is not granted automatically. doesn't come that way. It is only for those who are, as this says, his says, through Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus. For those in Christ Jesus, one must demonstrate faith in what God has done through Christ in order to be included in the blessings of Abraham. After stating this, Paul then uses the word that or ina in the Greek again. This is used next in sequence after the first instance. Not only has there been a redemption from the curse of the law through Christ, but because of that, there is also the allowance that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Note the pronoun, we. Paul is a Jew, but he is writing to the Gentiles about a matter which concerns them. In his words, he shows that the same promise is given to both Jew and Gentile in exactly the same way. There's one gospel 
There's not two Gospels. Hyper-dispensationalism completely blows it, and once again, they step into the realm of heresy, okay? I'll read it again. Paul is a Jew, but he is writing to the Gentiles about a matter which concerns them. In his words, he shows that the same promise is given to both Jew and Gentile in exactly the same way. Release from the mandates of the law and the granting of the Spirit both come through Christ's work. Further, they come upon all who simply believe. Go back and read it again. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and think on those things. We, are, we believe, we receive, and it is done by simply calling out to Christ. That is it. The promise of the Spirit was prophesied in the Old Testament in passages such as Joel 2, 28 and 29. In fact, that passage was cited by Peter in Acts 2, 16 through 31 to show that the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost was a fulfillment of that passage. Now, I know I got somebody upset about this a couple weeks ago, but who is Peter speaking to in his address in Acts chapter 2? He's speaking to the Jews, okay? Now, we could lump ourselves into that and say, oh, he's speaking to us too, but we can't. And there's a reason for that, but I won't get into it right now. The reason why we do not take the book of Acts as a prescriptive book is because Acts is not a prescriptive book. Acts is a historical account of what occurred in the establishment of the church. There is almost no prescription in the book of Acts. There are some things that are prescriptive or there are some things that are truths. Somebody emailed me a question this week about uh, the, the jailer that was in the prison. And he came out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's a truth. It's neither descriptive nor, nor prescriptive so much as it's just a truth that is found elsewhere in the Bible. Okay, it does describe what happened to him. It doesn't prescribe anything per se. It's just saying that that's what happened. It's a historical account. But it goes on to say you and your family. And the question is, does that mean the family is saved at the same time as the person? Or does that mean that the person is saved if they believe like that person did? The second is the correct answer. Nobody is saved apart from belief in Jesus Christ. Okay, so believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household means that they must also believe on the Lord Jesus and they will be saved. They went home. He took them and bandaged up their wounds. Wounds. He believed. He, they baptized him and the family also believed and they baptized them as well. Okay, so that's one thing to understand is that the book of Acts must be treated extremely carefully. I wish that we had done it and been able to record it when we went through it, but it will be after the book of Revelation. We're in chapter two right now, so we've only got another 20, uh, chapter 21 chapters to go. and We'll be done with Revelation in a little more than a year, and then I will do a commentary on the book of Acts. If you can wait, and if the Lord doesn't come, you will want to read that commentary, and you'll understand why we do not use the book of Acts in a prescriptive manner. And particularly, things that are said in the book of Acts are said to certain groups of people for certain reasons. Joel, that is talking about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, was brought up by Peter, specifically to Israel, for the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. And that will be fulfilled, once again, at the end of the age, when Israel is again calling on Jesus. But for right now, just trust me on that. If you don't trust me, that's fine. I go out and check it, and uh, you, you may come up with some other doctrine which is incorrect, and that's fine with me. As long as we love each other, I'll let you go on it. Okay, um, let's see here. Peter Acts 2, 16 through 31, to show that uh, the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost was a fulfillment of that passage. 
It should be noted that with the promise being fulfilled now in both Jew and Gentile in a demonstrable way, and which is then recorded in the Bible, an outward demonstration of the Spirit is no longer necessary. Paul shows in Ephesians 1, 13, and 14 that when a person believes in Christ, they are sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee of their salvation. Instead of an outward demonstration sight, we now believe that the Spirit has been given faith. It comes back to faith for us. It does not come back to sight. If you believe that your faith must be demonstrated in outward signs, then you are wrong. It is faith that Paul is speaking about here. It's what Paul is speaking about all the way through all of his writings. The things that happened in the book, um, I'll tell you what happened. Somebody uh, was either last week or two weeks ago emailed me and was upset with, at me because I said that um, uh, we no longer need these outward demonstrations of the Spirit. I'm glad he watches the Bible class. It made me happy. And, you know, but um, uh, he said, I want you to show me one verse in the Bible that says that gifts have ceased. The apostolic gifts have ceased. And I gave him all kinds of proofs. And I said, now I want you to give me one verse from the Bible that says they haven't ceased. Because there is not a verse that says that the apostolic gifts have ceased. And there's also not one that says that they are going to continue on all the way through the church age. So that's a fallacy in thinking that you have to tell me something that I don't have to justify. Everybody got that? You have to be able to justify yourself. And therefore, as I told him, not everything in the Bible is laid out. Okay? Does everybody here in this church right now, do, do you all believe in the Trinity? Everybody? Yes. Where is the Trinity stated in the Bible? It's not. How about original sin? Do you believe that in original sin that we don't have to teach our children to do wrong, that they already know how to do that? Okay, I see all people's heads shaking. Where is original sin explicitly stated in the Bible? It's not. But you can implicitly come up with a doctrine which supports that. Okay, we have a doctrine which supports the Trinity. It's all the way through the Bible. I did a sermon on it, and if you want to see, go look. I mean, you'll understand the Trinity is a real doctrine, but it's not stated anywhere explicitly. Well, neither is either cessation or non-cessation of apostolic gifts. You have to take things in context, and this verse here is showing us that the context is faith. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't say that we're going to be given outward manifestations of the Spirit. Those were given at a certain time and for a certain reason, especially because uh, Jews require a sign. Greek seek after wisdom. Jews require a sign, but I preach Christ crucified. It's by faith, okay? That's where our walk is. If you need an outward sign for your faith, it ain't faith, okay? So there you go with that. Um, Paul shows in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 that when a person believes in Christ, they are sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee of their salvation. Instead of an outward demonstration, sight, we are now to believe that the Spirit has given faith. The modern charismatic movement, which claims one must have an outward demonstration of tongues, is not only nonsense, it is also contrary to the idea of living by faith. Hedico, I want you to remind me, obviously that air conditioner is not working. It went out today, the pump is bad, and we got to get that fixed tomorrow. So I may not be able to go out with you. We'll see. If I can, I can. But I've got to get that fixed because we got church coming Sunday morning. So I'm sorry, it's hot. We got all kinds of fans. Everybody got a hand fan, so use it. All right. Life application. The law is ended. The time of the giving of the Spirit has come, and this is offered to any and all who will receive the work of Christ by mere faith. Verse 315. We'll get that, and then we'll be done because it's, it's getting hot in here. We'll do one more. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant 
that has been duly established, so it is in this case. So it is in this case, yes. Sorry. Okay, that's all right. You yeah, read you read it again, and I'll get it while you're reading it. Read it. For others, okay. let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Okay, this is completely different than that. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Actually, I should wait till next week to do this. We'll do it now, and then I'll have to remind you because it's all one big thought that's coming. But 3.15, Paul now wisely proclaims a truth which was understood among humanity in general. When a covenant was made, it became a binding agreement between parties. One party could not arbitrarily add to it to detract portions of it or call it void. Once it was in effect, it stood as a permanent and unchangeable agreement concerning what had transpired. Ron, I want to make an agreement with you. I'll hire you to, um, you know, uh, uh, fix, the fix the air conditioner. <laughs> Every week you come in and you do this, blah, 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 and I'll pay you this much, and blah, 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 and then you agree. And I can't just arbitrarily say, okay, well, I'm not going to pay you for the next three weeks, right? We've made an agreement and we have to stick by it. And he also can't say, well, I've decided to do it only once every four weeks instead of every two weeks, okay? Because we've made an agreement. That's a covenant between you and me. It's not actually because we didn't cut animals and all that, but it, we've made an agreement. And that is what Paul is speaking about here, okay? Once it was in effect, it stood as a permanent and unchangeable agreement concerning what had transpired. If you fail to meet your part of it, the covenant is annulled. It's done. In the case of the covenant that was made with Abraham, the Lord's words implied that they were speaking of the coming Messiah. In your seed, all nations shall be blessed. The terminology could mean nothing else. 430 years later, the law of Moses was brought into the picture as Israel agreed to its terms at the foot of Mount Sinai. However, what came about in that law could in no way be added to or annulled. What transpired between the Lord and Abraham stood. Everybody see that? It stood. The law cannot come in and abrogate what's already come between Abraham and the Lord. Works, I'm sorry, where was I? Yes. Um, yeah, in fact, the law was, where was I? Um, da, 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 portions of, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, okay, there you go. In fact, the law was based on works, whereas the promise granted righteousness by faith. Works and faith are mutually exclusive principles. Therefore, both in the fact that the covenant with Abraham preceded the law, it came before the law, and the fact that these agreements were based on conflicting tenets, one is faith and one is works, the law could in no way be an avenue to a declaration of righteousness. There's only one way to be declared righteous. It's by faith. Understanding this, he says, brethren, the word is given to highlight the fact that they, Gentiles in the flesh, were brethren to him, a Jew who was born and raised under the law. I speak in the manner of men, he says. That's given in accordance with the example mentioned above, which was the universally understood nature of covenants. Concerning such a covenant, he says, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one adds or annuls it. No one adds to it and no one annuls it. If this is true, with a covenant between men, how much more certain is such a covenant when it is made by the Lord? Further, after declaring Abraham righteous by faith alone, the covenant which was made with him was one-sided, 
only the Lord passed through the divided animals. Both sides did not. The entire passage shows that what was promised and the covenant that was cut was based solely on the faith of Abraham and the unchangeable nature of God who cannot lie. Everybody see that? That's a really important point to understand before we close today. God made the covenant. Abraham had no pardon except to simply believe God. And Abraham said, this is going to happen as I live. He put himself through that. If he failed to do that, this universe would cease to exist that quick because he is the one that sustains the entire universe. He will never annul the covenant of faith. Life application. The law cannot nullify what was already in effect concerning the promise to Abraham. Therefore, the law was given for a different purpose. When it had served its usefulness, it was set aside in the giving of the new covenant, a covenant based on grace. If you are under grace, then you cannot be under law. The two are mutually exclusive. Good stuff. All right. Sorry, we're going to close a couple minutes early, but it is hot in here. Heavenly Father, thank you for air conditioners that work. And we uh, just praise you for your wonderful word. We thank you that... Uh, uh, it is such a treasure. It is such a gift to participate in your word and to share in it and to uh, learn more about it every day and also to remember because it's so easy to forget so many points of theology are in your word that it's good to go back and to brush up and to continue to contemplate your word at all times. Then, Lord, we certainly pray for our president. We know he's going through so many trials and difficulties with the people on the uh, left just abusing him day to day. And please give him strength, give him wisdom, give him endurance through this trial, and we pray that he will come out victorious once again in the uh, election on November 3rd. And Lord, we pray for those that are afflicted, for those that are uh, having difficulties and trials, and we certainly ask that you lift them up and bless them in their hearts and in their souls. And we pray these things that you will be glorified, and we pray them that they will be built up in you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, we'll hope that we can get the air conditioner guy out here early tomorrow morning. We'll see what happens. We'll go to the break. Yeah.